this solitary month retreat is moving towards but not yet arrived at its latter phases. And some of you may have a, a sense of that. This last week, for most of you here, an opportunity to continue to deepen, to ripen, to allow to come to fuller and fuller maturity, the many wonderful qualities and capacities of heart and mind that are cultivated through this practice. Something very precious here in this opportunity to to explore in a sustained way the remarkable potential of the human heart, the human mind, the human life, we could say. And as we may have done at the beginning, there's a way in which it's also useful in the middle and equally at any other point of a retreat to occasionally just check in with why we're doing what we're doing here, what our motivation is. And particularly useful and beneficial in the context of a a longer retreat to take the opportunity now and then to reflect on the, the breadth of our vision equally as its depth. And in one sense, the depth might be described as the recognition of our capacity to awaken, to realise freedom, and a clear and conscious aligning of ourselves with this potentiality. And the breadth might be understood as the embracing of everything of the entirety of our experience and the entirety of all beings in that awakening. So that no thing and no being is left out of our vision. To do so would be to ultimately limit its potential, its power and its beauty. So... I'd like to speak today about one of the, or perhaps a couple of the aspects of that breadth of vision. And the framework for this, or the beginning point, could be, and for this morning will be, the the Buddha, the historical Buddha himself, who, according to the tradition and described in one of his discourses, had the opportunity to awaken, to be fully liberated, to be released entirely from suffering. Many, many eons before the modern and relatively modern age of the last few thousand years in which it actually took place, that he practiced in a time and a condition in which uh, he had the opportunity and potential to awaken, and yet encountering a previous Buddha encountering a fully enlightened being who had not just awakened but had developed and brought to full fruition all of the human qualities and capacities that are beautiful, that are noble, that are powerful and that enable a Buddha to be able to teach every being as they need to be taught. Therefore to be the greatest servant to the liberation of beings that is possible for a human to become. Having met in this past existence, the Buddha relates, a fully enlightened Buddha, he resolved in himself to not awaken or to not gain or attain the realisation of liberation and freedom without having fully developed all of the human qualities it's possible to develop, in order to be able to serve other beings as the Buddha he encountered and who so touched and impressed him had done. And from this we have within the the tradition, and certainly within the Theravada tradition, although it's somewhat more emphasised in the Mahayana, the, the later northern schools of Buddhist teaching, 
but it's equally there within the Pali Canon and text, the, the sense of a vision of possibility that goes beyond simply our own liberation. Understanding, of course, that we are not separate. In a very real way, there is no personal liberation. There is no liberation that is ours. And uh, in terms of asking about ourselves about our motivation, we might sometimes question, so, well, who am I practicing for here? Is this just for me? Because if it's just for me, and yet my sense of me is a misapprehension, then we're obviously going to be limiting ourselves. And so, having the sense of the potential of awakening for all beings, this vast aspiration, this noble and beautiful aspiration, that doesn't necessarily change what we're doing in the given moment, but might frame it in terms of our practice, might frame our practice within something larger. And so... What this involves, or one of the aspects of this, as well as that motivation, that sense of possibility of awakening for all beings, is the development of what the tradition has described or come to um, name as the parami, the perfections, the qualities of heart and mind which can be perfected, developed, or matured by a human being, that are beautiful, that are noble, and that are together what enables the full realisation of Buddhahood. In contrast to that which simply brings about the realisation of freedom, which is not to be scoffed at or in any way diminished in its significance, value or power but that isn't the entire picture, perhaps as a way we could say that. And the parami are what are those qualities that the Buddha resolved to develop, having seen that his teacher in that ancient time before the modern age or before the age of our current historical knowledge had been developed. And he undertook to develop this too. So I'd like to speak about these parami. But before I do, I'd like to, and somewhat in response to one or two things from some of you, I'd like to read again the poem that I finished the, uh, the last talk with. Because it really, to me, speaks to this. And... Uh, it was interesting arriving here this morning and just sitting in there. Oh, I was, I was here just recently, which doesn't normally happen on this retreat. We tend to schedule week by week in isolation and all turn up once a week at least in here. And uh, this time it seems like, oh, I was just here the other day. That's nice. I can remember what I was talking about. And probably you might as well, at least some of you. So uh, I want to read this poem, The Buddha's Last Instruction, because this was his last offering to his disciples and to those who were there at that momentous time. And not this poem, obviously, but what he said to them, which is translated variously as make of yourself a light, make of yourself a lamp, make of your, or be an island unto yourself is also how it's translated. And it's kind of interesting to me with any translation how the, the scholars and the experts can come up with such different versions of what was actually said. So the bottom line, of course, is I don't, and I guess we don't really know exactly what he said. But this poem, for me, expresses what I think could have been said in a situation like that. And what it means to say, make, be a lamp unto yourself. Be an island unto yourself. Be a, be a lamp. What is it to be a lamp? To give forth light and warmth into this world. To become that which transform, transforms the, the materiality of the fuel in a, in a lamp whatever it is that's being burnt, that transforms that matter into energy that is luminous and warm. So, the Buddha's last instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. 
I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought about everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha, before he died. These words of Mary Oliver's poem speak to this invitation of what we might do with our life, with our practice, to make of ourselves a light. To understand what it is to discover ourselves turning into something of inexplicable value. That that potentiality is within all of us. Something precious and beautiful that is revealed through our practice. And can be revealed in particular qualities of heart and mind. The parami. So I'll just name them initially. The, the parami are generosity, sharing, dana, ethics, non-harming, sila in the Pali, or renunciation, letting go, nikamma, effort and energy, virya, patience, kanti, truthfulness and honesty, sakya, equanimity, or balance and upekka, resolve or determination, aditana, wisdom, understanding, panya, and loving kindness, friendliness, metta. These are the, the parami, the qualities that the Buddha perfected, or perfected isn't quite the right word, is it? It's sort of perfectionism isn't really what we're about. It's like brought to the fullness of their potentiality, I think is a more useful way to frame it, but it's a few more words, and so perfections is useful for shorthand. The perfectibles, perhaps, is more precise. The perfectible qualities. Generosity. This one really stands at the heart of it all. The willingness to share, the willingness to give away. To not define our choices by just our sense of our own needs, wants, or preferences. But to make choices in how we use what we have and how we offer it, that include the well-being of others and ultimately the well-being of all. That sense of sharing, of giving. It's something that's always there. You know, and the Buddha said of, uh, of practice, said, well, it's great to practice uh, wisdom, seeing through into the depths of, of, of the way things are. But if you can't do that, then at least perhaps try and practice calmness. And if you can't do that, which calmness is great and tranquility, some of that. But if you can't do that, at least practice mindfulness, noticing what's going on. If you can't practice noticing what's going on, at least practice ethics. And if you can't even maintain your ethics and precepts, and you find yourself, at least practice generosity. And you can always practice generosity. It's kind of like it's a benchmark on a bedrock that we can come back to as something we can develop. It's always possible to find some way to share or to offer even a kind word, a kind thought and bring ourselves back, realigning with that sense of, okay, what can I cultivate that's beautiful in this moment? And I think it's so natural, so instinctive for us. Young children and not so young children, 
when encountering a, a creature, an animal, so often the inclination is to want to give it to give something to it or to feed it. I know sometimes on retreat here, walking in the gardens and seeing the little bunnies, there's this overwhelming urge in my heart. It's just, I want to give them something. And of course, what I can mostly give them is not running up and trying to cuddle them because that will terrify them. So I, I hold myself back from that. I just like to say, oh, you're great. I love you, sort of thing. Um, and yet that sense of that natural, just, oh, yeah, I'd like to share. There's something very natural, something very true in that. And so often we're told not to follow through on it because it'll create expectations. All the bunnies will want to cuddle and then you'll be overwhelmed and worn out and you won't practice, you know. <laughs> How many times have we done that? Don't give something now because then they'll keep expecting it. Tragic. Tragic. Give now and if you can't give later, you can't. It's how it is. That's their practice to deal with their expectation. You know, they say better to teach a person to fish than to give them a fish. It's true. If you've got time to stop and give them a f- and teach them how to fish, teach them to fish. If you give them a fish, they won't be hungry today, it says. If you, give, if you teach them to fish, they'll never be hungry. Now, obviously that whole analogy doesn't deal with the, relation, the reality for the fish, but for the person we're concerned with there, if you can teach them to fish, great. If you feel okay about that, maybe teach them to grow carrots, that's better. Teach them to grow carrots or give them a carrot. It's perhaps a slightly more um, sort of less controversial way to frame it. If you've got time to teach them to grow carrots, great. If you haven't and you've got a carrot and they need and they're hungry and they're going to be hungry today without it, why not give it to them? So easily we restrain that natural urge. We don't need to. We don't need to. But sometimes giving a little when we'd like to give more, we feel that there's actually a tenderness in that, opening to the truth of someone else's need and not yet being able to fully resolve it for them and actually abide in the tenderness of that. is something beautiful and powerful and very opening. And that's actually often what holds us back, not wanting to be touched that deeply by the fact that beings have needs that we can't fulfil even if we would wish to. Just as we ourselves might have needs or wants that we can't necessarily fulfil, though we might wish to. And yet generosity says, give what we can, offer what we can, and trust in the power of that, of that offering. It releases us from the self-centeredness of our lives very directly and practically. And there's a great joy and delight in the sense of relatedness, connectedness, and mutual sharing that comes from generosity. Of course, I could probably speak for the whole hour on any one of these topics, but I'll attempt to restrain myself. So, generosity, dana, sharing. And incidentally, dana specifically means making an offering. Though we generally we use it often in the West to mean generosity in a sort of a broader sense. But dana means actually the practice of making an offering. So, sila, non-harming or ethics talked about at the beginning of the retreat the precepts, the sense of that intentionality to restrain from causing harm to others, to be intending and seeking to treat others as we wish to be treated and what a gift what a beautiful thing to offer, the gift of safety to others and equally importantly the gift of safety to ourselves, because the greatest danger in our lives is not that we might get harmed or hurt or have our things taken <coughs> but that we set up in our life unconsciously or unintentionally conditions that are going to bring us further suffering. That's the greatest danger of our existence because it runs not just within this moment or this lifetime, but it runs throughout the dimension of time beyond just this existence. And so in terms of safety, in terms of protection, protecting ourselves while protecting others by that intention, that commitment to restrain from causing harm. This is the greatest safety for our heart that it can have. Understanding that what we do to this world 
is done to us. This is the truth of karma. What we do to this world is done to us. Jesus put it in terms of that which you do to the least of my brothers, that you do unto me, or something like that. And a couple of stories that illustrate this very beautifully and powerfully, the sense of how we act. And one, it's actually in terms of generosity, for the first, what I was speaking about before, it's a beautiful story of a woman who lived in a community in New Mexico. It was a wasn't specifically Buddha Dharma oriented, but very uh, sympathetic and engaged with that, and founded by a lot of people connected also with Ramdas and uh, the uh, the path of service taught by um, Ramdas's guru, named Karoli Baba. And they they had a community called Lama Foundation in the mountains in, in Taos, New Mexico, and. A woman there, together with a, a dear friend, had uh, on some occasion while visiting a small pueblo in the, in the desert, found these exquisite handcrafted um, ceramic bowls that were just of an order of quality and beauty that was beyond anything they'd ever encountered before in their lives. And they were just blown away by it. And they each bought one. They paid quite a lot of money for them and were happy to. And it was just the two of them these two bowls and they bought them they each had one and some time after that the woman who lived in the community heard that her friends had been knocked over and broken and her friend was quite upset by that and she contemplated and reflected on this and in her practice of generosity as one of the things of serving and sharing she decided I want to give my bowl to my friend and she did she probably might have taken a little bit longer than that I don't want to over-egged the story, but it was probably quite a letting go for her. A few months later, Lama Foundation burnt down. It was an accident. Um, I'm not quite sure. I don't remember. I once might have known how it happened, but it burnt down. Most of the dwellings of the people who lived in that community were destroyed, and they built them with their own hands. Almost everything, except, in fact, their meditation room, was destroyed or gutted. And all their possessions were gone. They, they flew. No one was harmed, fortunately, but they left with just what they had on. And that was it. That's all that was saved. And as they were sitting together, and not just a few days after, really, and just thankful for their survival and their, all of them having lived, but also grieving the loss of many things dear and precious to them, the woman's friend walked up the path and, you can probably guess at this point, offered her the bowl back. And something really beautiful and just the, both the, the sweetness of the offering but also the sense of if she hadn't given that bowl away she would have lost it. Only because she gave it away she still had it. That's karma in a more concrete sense than sometimes we just speak about it. Karma is also the story told to me by a, a, a retreatant once who when we were reflecting on this theme said when she lived in an apartment with someone else for a number of um, years, they eventually had a really difficult um, breakdown in their relationship. They weren't in, it wasn't an intimate relationship. They were just um, well, intimate in some ways, but not in others. Um, but she decided to leave the apartment, and there'd been a really nice wooden clothes horse that had been there that she thought it was probably her friend's or housemates, roommates, flatmates, whatever how you call them. Um, but she wasn't sure. But She thought it might have been there when they both moved into the place. She wasn't sure, but it wasn't hers anyway. But she really liked it. It was really convenient, really nice piece of wood and folded away. And so when she left, she didn't say anything. She didn't ask. She just took it. She said, you just took it. She was sort of aware that this was you know, not quite in line with the second precept, not taking that which isn't clearly and freely given. But she took it anyway. And she moved in with someone else, somewhere else in the, in the town. And after some time, they were, they were living there. And she reported to me when we were talking about this, she said, and after a while, the other person she was living with moved out. And they took the clothes horse. Yes. <laughs> and it was like, wow, would you look at that? Amazing, huh? They're both true stories. Our true possessions, that which we take with us in our life and beyond, are our actions. 
That's the only thing we own. Everything else is stripped away at the end. But how we have lived and what we have done, this comes with us. And this, founding our actions on both the wholesome motivation of cultivating freedom and the well-being of all, but equally on refraining from causing harm. These become the most precious possessions we have. What we've done and the expression and the spirit of that. The next of the paramis is renunciation, letting go, nikamma. It's a word that often Westerners find themselves a little bit aversive to, don't really like the idea. It sounds like deprivation to us, letting go, renunciation, having to do without, yuck. And of course, very strongly, the message around us is happiness comes from getting more, having more and keeping it, piling it up. So the idea of losing it all or letting it go looks like suffering. And yet, letting go is the basis of contentment. Renunciation is the basis of contentment. When we talk about seclusion giving rise to contentment or happiness in terms of development of the mind, seclusion is born of letting go. In terms of developing calmness and tranquility of mind, seclusion, which right, letting go of all the activity, all the input stimulation, seclusion leads to happiness. So we create an environment here that's quite secluded. Not so much on the walls, not so many things to read if you can restrain yourself from spending too much time in the library, which we encourage you to do. Secluding ourselves, doing without. It's not renunci- It's not deprivation, it's actually ah, space. An incredible gift. And that sense of contentment. A story I'd like to tell with regard to this of a of a Sufi master who had a very committed and devoted group of followers who lived with her at her, I don't know if it's temple or community centre, however um, it was, but she would speak to them often about the value of simplicity and renunciation and how really you didn't need to have many things and so there was you know, very simple food and not too much of it and no one really had many possessions in this community. And yet her students will all observe that on a Saturday she would every Saturday pretty much go down to the village market and spend all day down there amongst all these wonderful things that you could buy and have and consume and eat and own. She'd come back looking very happy. But they weren't allowed. So after some time, one of them says to her, says, Master, Master, we understand you teach us about simplicity and renunciation, letting go, and, and yet we don't understand. Can you explain to us why is it that every Saturday you go down to the market and you spend all day and you come back looking so happy? And the Master, she looked at them, she said, well, you know, it's quite straightforward. I like to go down to the market on a Saturday because it gives me great joy to see all the things that I'm happy without. to understand all the things we are happy without. There's actually a real joy in that. Letting go, simplicity, that comes from not needing to have too much. There's a lightness about it. It's like the lightness that comes of not treating our life like a journey where we have to put everything into a sack and carry it with us. So, learning to be happy without. Understanding that happiness, true happiness, doesn't depend upon the having of a something, or the keeping it, or the getting it. If we get that, if we see what that possibility of letting go of renunciation offers us, this is the key to the jewels of the Dharma. And in terms of practice, we can ask ourselves in this context, you know, because letting go isn't easy. Sometimes, you know, one thinks, hmm, I'd like a little something. The question to ask oneself, and the way I frame it that I find really useful for myself is, okay, what am I feeding here? Because if I'm feeding something wholesome and beneficial, that's great. And if I'm not, hmm, I might think about this a second time. At a simple level, for instance, with food, if I'm sort of heading for the fridge, um, in that sense of I'd like something, and to ask the question, okay, what am I feeding here? Is this actually something about nourishing my bodily well-being? Because if I feed that, it's going to increase, which is a good thing. I have no problem with that. I'm allowed to feed myself. It's okay. 
But if I'm feeding my urge for pleasant sensations or sense of greed and always give me, give me, give me, then that's going to get bigger and stronger. Do I really want that? That's the question that renunciation asks us to ask, I think. What do I want to feed here? Because if I'm feeding something wholesome, it'll get bigger and stronger. And if I'm feeding something that's not wholesome, that will get bigger and stronger. And letting go is being able to say, oh, actually, I don't want to feed that. I might actually quite like some yummy something right now, but I don't want to feed the urge that's driving that. You can't take that to mean that just because you want something, you shouldn't have it, however. Because if our tendency is to always suppress any urge coming forward of, I'd like a little something, if our tendency is rather than to always act on it, but to always suppress it, then sometimes to find balance, we have to allow ourselves to express and explore what that is. That there might be something wholesome in that. Sometimes the renunciation is not following the habit of being stingy to ourselves. And that's a renunciation that's sometimes harder for us, interestingly enough. But ultimately this letting go is the letting go. Renunciation, letting go, nikkama, that letting go is what opens the door to freedom, to the end of suffering. Suffering being born of craving and letting go being the release release of that. Of course, it's not easy, as I said. And uh, the next of the paramis is energy, effort, virya. That sense of being able to gather together the, the vitality of our life and engage it, direct it, bring it forth into action, into activity. And it... You know, there's an immense amount of challenge we have to face in our practice. The force and the power of habits of conditioning is not to be underestimated. And so again, this capacity we have to make an effort to support, to cultivate and develop that which is wholesome and beneficial. To abandon, to let go of and to allow to fall away those patterns and habits which are not beneficial and wholesome. And this is the basic framework of effort in Buddha Dharma. It's not to get something or to have something, but to orient towards that which is wholesome and to withdraw our consent from and our support for that which is not wholesome and beneficial. In our own experience and equally in the world, at times we have to take a stand and say, no, I'm not going to keep spinning out in that story because it's not useful. Or, no, I'm not going to refuse to let myself feel what's going on underneath the story because that's not helpful either. And actually commit ourselves to something that we don't normally do. Or it might be in the world where we say, I want to stand up and speak to what is important here and say, this we must attend to or that we must bring to an end. It requires effort. And with effort, of course, the next of the paramis is also needed. Patience, kanti. Just because we make the effort, just because we orient in this way, doesn't mean it simply happens. It's not guaranteed to just, boof, be there. Kanti. To be able to begin again and again. And again and again and again. Kanti was, in fact, really the first precept or practice guideline that the Buddha gave to the monks. It wasn't the 227 precepts or the full range of teachings that ultimately were expounded. It was, be patient, just stay with us. We have many opportunities to cultivate this quality on retreat and in our lives. And I think a useful uh, light on this is, is shone by uh, a conversation that his holiness, the Dalai Lama, had with a, a practitioner who came to see him and had an opportunity for uh, to speak about his practice. And he, he said, you know, Your Holiness, I've been practicing for about 20 years. I've done this practice and that practice. I've had these teachings, that teaching. I've done these retreats. And it says, you know, so he laid out quite a, what would seem like quite an extensive CV of spiritual sort of uh, development and work. And he said, and when I practice, this particular thing keeps happening that's really difficult and these things are really challenging. And... Um, the story goes that, you know, His Holiness listened really compassionately and sort of sensibly saying, yes, 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 yes. And uh, when, the, when the man had finished speaking and he was kind of looking for some solution or resolution to these particular painful difficulties, His Holiness said, yes, you know, 
I understand it. It is really difficult, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's like that in the early years of practice. <laughs> and I think there's something lovely in that, just that sense of that vision of, so who says that 20 years of committed practice means we should have got there and have done with all the things that are challenging? Maybe those are the early years. We don't know. And if they were the early years, wouldn't we give ourselves more permission to just be where we are without in any way, hopefully, giving up on the sense of where we could be? To hold those two together really is one of the great arts of practice. To let ourselves be where we are and yet not give up on what is possible for us. Those two things are not in conflict with each other. So taking a long view, one step at a time, and yet taking the step that's here now. The next to the parami is truthfulness or honesty, sakya. Sakya was the name of one of the famous gods who often had dialogues with the Buddha. But uh, I think Rob spoke in the first or second week at some length on the topic of honesty truthfulness. So just briefly the the power of honesty is again immense and what it offers to the world is an orientation towards the way things are rather than our habitual attempt to shift the orientation towards how I would like it to be. Because how I would like it to be rather unfortunately turns out to be frequently in contradiction with how things actually are. And are we willing to face how things are? This is, in the end, without that, none of this makes any sense. If this is about trying to get it how we want it, sorry, it's not going to work. It's not set up to do that. But if we're really willing to face how things are, everything is possible. Everything is possible. Some of what's key with this is to be able to see in ourselves what is true of ourselves that we encounter. And two sides of this. One is to be able to really recognize the places where we have limitations, vulnerabilities, blindnesses, or we could say we're not so developed. And we might notice that we have some real clarity and ability to see and understand things, but the ability to rest and calmness and stillness isn't so developed. We might say, oh, that's, that's somewhere... Or actually we're really calm, we're really still, we're really open, but... We don't want to let anything in too close in case it shakes that up. We might not, oh, okay, so, yeah, plenty of samatha and calm and clarity, but not so much connectivity or sensitivity in that regard. We might be very heartful and sensitive and warm and able to really empathise with people, but we find ourselves overwhelmed with a sense of, of, of tragedy in encountering their suffering. And maybe what we actually need to cultivate is equanimity. And so it's like being able to see, oh, where are the areas I need to develop and strengthen? To be honest with it. Not like we should be somehow by now economists. It's not true. If it's not true in yourself, it's not true. That's all there is to it. Equally important and perhaps more difficult for us in terms of truthfulness is to honour our good qualities. Honour that which we have cultivated. Which we have brought into more full fruition or expression that which is beautiful now how many sittings do we end thinking oh I could have been a bit more calm or still or quiet or insightful or less grasping instead of the possibility of saying oh wow there were some moments there of real presence or openness or clarity being able to honour what's there likewise in our life or our retreat for most of us if we were asked to list ten of our failings, faults or limitations we could and read it out we could do it relatively easily we were asked to list ten things that are really great about ourselves, most of us would shrink away in terror at the idea. And yet truthfulness asks to go just as wholeheartedly into that territory as the one about my limitations. To really be able to honour that, to see that which is beautiful. And in terms of talking about the parami, you know, being able to notice, oh yeah, there's sometimes room for development here, but also, oh wow, there's really some expression of that one here in this being. It doesn't have to be all about me and mine to acknowledge that, oh yeah, it's happening here. How beautiful. 
Just as if we saw it happening in someone else. We could hopefully say, oh wow, look at that. How beautiful. To align our life with the truth of things. Again, immensely powerful choice or commitment to make. Challenging, but transformative. It's said that the Buddha, in his many, many lifetimes of developing these paramis, these ten qualities, that from the time of first encountering the previous Buddha to when he himself became a Buddha, fully enlightened, it's said that he messed up in all sorts of ways. He did all sorts of stupid, bad, foolish things, but he always told the truth. So, if he messed up, he said, oop, I messed up. That basically is what allows us to keep learning and growing through it all. Honesty with ourselves. Doesn't mean we have to tell everyone else. Next to the paramis is equanimity, sense of balance, upeka. What it means to be open to all experiences, to, like the sunshine, touch all things, irrespective of any judgment of whether they're deserving. So the idea that the sun would decide, oh, I should shine on this, but I won't shine on that. Because this is lovely and that's horrible. No, the sun shines on all things. Equanimity is that willingness in ourselves to, in a way, shine on all things, or be touched, be open to all things. To be equally near to all things is a beautiful expression of it. We think sometimes equanimity is like, pull back, keep well distant, and then I'll be calm and steady, and you know. But actually, we're not calm and steady in relationship to them. We're calm and steady out of relationship to them when we do that, out of fear that if I'm close to it, it's going to make me shake or impact me. Equanimity is not about flattening out our inner life into some kind of sort of Buddhist calm so nothing happens. Not at all. It's about being able to ride and move with the waves of our life and to have a sense of being rooted down into the depths of our life, into the depths of our being, into the depths of the present moment, we could say. To be able to return to that sense of alignment and rootedness. And it's a little bit like a boat, a yacht on the open sea has a keel. You know, that piece of wood or metal or material that sticks out of the bottom of the boat and sticks into the ocean. So on the top there's wind and there's waves and there's squalls and there's currents and all of that. But by putting that down into the de- deeper Waters, there's a stability so you can't get blown off or just flipped over or turned around very easily. In the sense of being rooted into something deeper. And the deeper the keel, the deeper the rooting. So that equanimity is about having a place we can return to, that we can refer to, that we can recognize as somewhere we are rooted and grounded and able to steady ourselves even in the face of the storms. And there are storms. We know that. We might think that you know, do enough retreats, get enough samadhi, enough insight, then that'll be the end of the storms. I'm not sure that's how it is. In fact, a, a reading of the Buddha's life would suggest that he had to face storms too in the world around him, and equally at times, perhaps within himself. But in the meeting of them, having the confidence of knowing, yeah, there is this ground, there is this rootedness, there is a sense of really having come to understand the depths of of our life that when on the surface things are a bit chaotic or crazy or scary or confusing we we aren't completely lost in or defined by that there's more and there's that sense of rooting ourselves down taking our seat in the in the immediacy of what's possible to just be present with The next of the paramis is resolve, determination, aditana. I don't know why I like that word, but I do. Aditana. Something about that, t- I think it's sort of, it's got this sort of, boom. and uh, that's what it's about, aditana. It's like the sense of boom. really committing yourself to something, to make a clear intention and then to back yourself on that all the way, to back yourself on your intentions all the way. Not about half-heartedness. 
So we say, come to a retreat and stay. We say, arrive at the sitting and stay. Now that might mean that you have to, doesn't mean you might not need to change your posture or move at some time. But the sense of stay, I'm going to commit myself to being here in the space. What that means. And the, 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 you know, the, for me, incredibly inspiring expression of this from the Buddha's own story before his enlightenment, his, his commitment to that expressed in terms of taking his seat under the Bodhi tree where he said, I will not move from this place. I will not move from this place until I have understood that which can be understood by human endeavour. Realise that which can be realised by human endeavour. I will not move from this place. Though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust, I will not move from this place until I have realised that which can be realised by human endeavour. And I don't know how many times I've read those words or shared them or spoken them, but I still find a kind of a shiver through my spine when I just, I will not move. Just that sense of poof. Aditana, just poof. And just the sense of, yeah, really backing. The Buddha really backed himself there. And we can do that. And we can develop the capacity to do that. To realise for ourselves what can be realised by a human being. Wisdom. Wisdom is the next of the paramis I speak about. Panya, understanding, to see things as they are. Arising from being present, being awake being interested and committed to this learning and understanding, this awakening. And wisdom is essentially that which when we understand and act upon it leads to the reduction and the ending of suffering. It's that simple. It's not something cosmic or mystical in and of itself, although it can be in some of its expressions. But what it is is simply that which when we act on it resolves, reduces, relieves and ultimately ends suffering. So when we understand, when we don't have wisdom and we act on blindness, confusion, delusion and ignorance, that causes suffering. Wisdom is the resolution to that blindness. To see things as they are. Seeing anicca, anatta, dukkha, change, impermanence. Seeing the unsatisfactoriness of things, their inability to give us lasting satisfaction. Seeing the, the emptiness of any sense of independent self-existence. Seeing the interrelatedness of all beings. Understanding this, this wisdom offers us release from suffering. When we live by it, when we live as though this was true, because it is true, when we live as if this wasn't true, we suffer because we're in conflict with the way things are. And that's ultimately what suffering is. To understand that this wave of our life is not separate from the ocean of this existence and never was, never could be. To understand in this non-separateness that we are connected to life in an infinite number of ways. And in response to this, the last of the, the paramis this isn't necessarily the order they're always spoken of or listed, but I find it the way I unfold them, is metta, loving-kindness, friendliness, that sense of caring for others and for ourselves. And the real quality of loving-kindness is one that cuts through, that dissolves or is not limited or boundaried by any sense of separation, that doesn't distinguish between self and other in the sense of caring for, wishing well for looking after and seeking to serve. This is really what loving-kindness is moving towards in its development, in its, in its deepening. The transformation of our heart, which includes loving-kindness in response to suffering, as compassion, caring, wishing well for. In response to others' happiness, is to be happy for that. It's out of caring, out of being connected. And as a way of responding to life, this capacity that we have, this natural, innate capacity to want to care for, to support, to, get, to serve, allowing it to more and more fully come into fruition. To be 
really the foundation of our lives, that we care for, that we serve all beings. And this really brings us back around to where we started this morning, with that aspiration of serving the welfare of all beings. That this is the ultimate expression of loving kindness and compassion, is the wish to contribute to, to support the relief from suffering of all beings, the releasing from entanglement of all beings, to do this. And this is really the, the, the ultimate expression of, of the bodhisattva's commitment, or the bodhisattva in the Pali. Bodhisattva is the more familiar in, in the Sanskrit. And it's one who, a being who aspires to full awakening for the liberation of all beings. Sattva being, being bodhi, being awakening. So that aspiration, a beautiful aspiration. And I'd like to finish with uh, the one expression of the, the classic Bodhisattva vow and then Shantideva's slightly larger enumeration of it. So the classic expression of the Bodhisattva's commitment is to undertake this, to say, beings, living beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Shantideva is a bit more poetic. He says, May I be a guard for those who are protectorless a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to cross the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an island for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a servant, may I be a slave. May I be the wish-fulfilling jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the trees of miracles and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures. For the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus, for every single thing that lives, in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. And so long as living beings endure, may I too remain and help relieve their suffering. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.